This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah. This is Elena Turdi from Dresden, Germany. And you're listening to a gem among podcasts, the Tennis Podcast. So thank you very much, Eleanor. What an absolutely lovely intro to the show, Catherine. And uh, fitting that it is for a show in which you are interviewing somebody who is as wonderful as Esther Vergeer, as everybody's going to get to hear. But uh, Eleanor is, uh, has really got the right idea, I think, for the intros. Yes, I am always fabulously impressed by people who can use colloquialisms in their non-native language. So to to call this a gem of a podcast in what is at least Eleanor's second language, I find very impressive and heartwarming. Indeed. And Matt, hello. How are you? Hello. Fine, thank you. I think Eleanor started the intros arm race that developed oh. last year. She, she did one for us last year as well and jazzed it up and ever since has sort of set the bar. So thank you, Eleanor. How wonderful. Well, if you didn't know, the reason Eleanor got to introduce our show is because she helped to fund the Tennis Podcast in 2021. She was part of our crowdfunding effort at the last end of last year. We'll be doing the same thing again at the end of this year. Um, and if you want to introduce the show, you'll be able to then. So something a bit different for today's Tennis Podcast. We have an interview for you with Esther Vergeer, who is pretty much the most successful tennis player that has ever lived and we are going to tell her story in her own words Catherine got to speak to her a couple of months ago and it's a wonderful interview I'm sure you're going to enjoy it enormously just to give you a, a little bit of background about Esther um, as I said I mean Matt's going to give you some of the statistics about her wheelchair tennis career but to to let you understand a little bit more about her background she was born in the Netherlands in July 1981. She began having health problems, dizziness and consciousness at the age of six and suffered strokes, which it turned out which were caused by abnormalities in her spine. She required a nine-hour surgery, which saved her life, but it left her paralysed from the waist down. Looking back, back on that period in her life, she said in an interview with Laureus in 2012, that you have this image of how everything will be, and then all of a sudden everything changed. You have to relearn everything. That was the hardest part. I couldn't get dressed the normal way I was used to. I couldn't play soccer the way I was used to. I couldn't go out for sleepovers with friends the way I used to. 
But I think because of sport, I relearned very quickly and realized what I could and what I couldn't do. And she went on to learn how to play wheelchair volleyball, basketball, and then tennis. And in tennis, Matt, is where things really came to fruition. And she started to become a serious athlete. I mean, when you look at some of her achievements, before we actually hear from her in her own words about her own journey, the actual achievements are mind-boggling on any level that I've ever heard about. And I, I think, uh, well, they're, they're unparalleled in the sport. Yeah, I don't really know where to start with this list of achievements, to be honest. It's it's one of the most spectacular careers in tennis, as you've said, spanning from the late 90s until her retirement in 2013. And full disclosure here, there is actually quite a lot of inconsistency in the reporting over how many Grand Slam titles she won in her career. There's consensus that she won 21 Grand Slam singles titles, all the events she entered, and she still holds the record for the most Grand Slam wheelchair women's singles titles. Worth noting that Wimbledon only introduced wheelchair singles after Vergeer had retired. But then the number of Grand Slam doubles titles that she won, in, in some places I've seen it reported as 27, which would bring her Grand Slam total up to 48. But I actually think she won 23 Grand Slam doubles titles because the ITF reported last year that Shingo Kunieda at the US Open won his 45th Grand Slam wheelchair title overall, which was overtaking Vergeer's record at the time of 44. So 44 Grand Slam titles in total across singles and doubles. What we know for sure is that she holds the record for the most tour-level wheelchair singles titles with 169 and in doubles with 136. She spent more than 650 weeks as the world number one. She won eight Paralympic medals, including seven golds, four straight singles golds, three doubles golds and doubles silver. She won 14 consecutive year-end championships from 1998 until 2011. And between August 2004 and October 2006, she won 250 consecutive sets, with only one of them going to a tie-break. Um, but I think the, the record she's most known for is, is the streak, her winning streak of 470 matches, only bettered by one professional athlete in all of sport, a Pakistani squash player, uh, who won 555 consecutive matches. That was Yahanga Khan, wasn't it? Yahanga Khan, exactly. And that streak forms a large part of the interview that Catherine did with Esther Vergeer, and there's absolutely fascinating Be Because I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> it. It is one of those things, though, isn't it, Catherine? I mean, you know, we're, we're going to hear about the detail from Esther herself, but... We were obsessed with it. I remember at the time, thinking back to when I was covering the sport, you, you just you just got to the end of a tournament and Esther Vergeer had won it. <laughs> That's just the way it was. So that, that encapsulated my entire career, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it made me fall down a bit of a Yahanga Khan rabbit hole, actually, uh, because I was so, uh, so mesmerised by just the concept and the psychology, well, you're here in the interview, but the psychology of being invincible mm. for that that longer period of time yeah just and just to experience something that 
so few people on the planet have ever experienced, you know, not even Roger Federer or Serena Williams or Novak Djokovic have experienced, not even Rafael Nadal on clay has experienced that level of invincibility. Um, I don't know if she, I should have asked her whether she ever got to meet Yohanga Khan. <laughs> he's Wish a name I could go from, back and ask her. He, he's a name from my childhood because uh, I remember him clocking up that record as well when I was young. But let's uh, let's hear from Esther Vergeer herself, shall we? Catherine spoke to her in January, and she's had a really difficult year. Everybody has, but Esther more than most. And Catherine started by asking how she is. I'm doing well. Um, of course, I was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer in the beginning of uh, uh, 2020, and and so the year for me started. Well, a little bit, uh, um, yeah, scary because I didn't know um, what the end was going to be or how the treatment was going to be. Um, but to be honest, I had a really good treatment and everything went well. And in August, um, I was uh, done with all the treatment and I was, well, um, healthy again. So that, that's what they said. And I feel healthy. I feel very fit um, at the moment. So I started and, and maybe that was just because uh, of I was diagnosed with cancer. I realized that I, in some cases, you just have to stop and, and um, have and take the time for yourself to, well, to take a rest or uh, to start to uh, uh, um, um, do some daily exercises again. Uh, because when I retired as a wheelchair tennis player, I, you know, I didn't have that structure of, of playing sports, uh, of being active anymore. And sometimes you just forget uh, to eat healthy and to uh, uh, to play sports. So that's what I put back in my daily routine. And I have to say that I, uh, yeah, I feel maybe fitter than I did before. So um, I'm doing well. Gosh, I'm so I'm so pleased to hear that. That's fantastic news. What what's it like as a professional athlete to get a diagnosis like that? Does it does it knock you for six? It, or does it? I'm, I mean, of course it does. But does the fact of being a professional athlete? Did you think that makes it more difficult to to deal with? Well, the difficult thing was that that is something. It's like a, a message. It's 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 a thing. It's a fact where you have no influence on so so everything that needs to be done to get it fixed or to 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 become healthy again is out of control and you have just no clue what it's going to going to be like um and that was the hard part for me that you have i mean it's a treatment that the doctors give you um and hopefully um um will fight the cancer and make you better but you just you you just don't know um and and i guess that was the most difficult part for me um but on the other hand i think uh so being an athlete or the fact that i was an athlete helped me also to uh, put myself in a strict regime of of um, uh, putting priorities first, um, and well, the doctor gave me an you know a strict schedule, and I just had to do that with the treatments and with the period of rest and and taking care of yourself. And I think I I know how to do that, and I think that is one of the things that uh, that helped me, um, you know, taking this disease step by step. Um, and I guess that with, as an athlete, you know how to do that as well. You have like an end goal and you have uh, steps in between that you have to take and results that you want to reach. Um, and then step by step, you just do your trainings and do your treatments. Um, and, and in my case, that helped. Yeah. I, I was reading s- some some quotes of some of your 
your peers and competitors and doubles partners, things that they've, they've said about you over the course of your career. And I, I was reading Sharon Wolverin said, mm-hmm. said your mental strength was what completely set you apart from, from, from everybody else um, in the sport. She said about you, she has the remarkable calmness and mental focus that puts her at a different level than the rest of us. Um, and I imagine that's been something that it's, that is, been a, a tremendous asset to you throughout throughout the last year has that has that always been the case for you is it something that comes naturally that mental strength um, I don't know if it's naturally um, but I know that I put a lot of effort in it uh, so I did a lot of training mental coach and and uh, sports psychologists trainings um, in the beginning of my career because I knew that what was that would or could be one of the assets that would help me in my uh, tennis career. And, um, and I know, or I was convinced that the combination of your brain and your physical abilities that is connected with each other, each other. So if I would have, well, the most control of my brain, um, uh, I would have the most control of my physical body and my performance. Um, and so that I, I put a lot of effort in the, and time in there to, to get it as well balanced or, uh, perfect as possible. And, and, and yeah, I, I guess she has a point in, in where if I look back on my career, there was not a lot of times that I was completely stressed out or there was not a lot of times that I was, uh, worried or out of focus on, uh, uh, on my tennis matches. Of course I was nervous and of course I was sometimes insecure about my, performance or but I always kind of knew how to get myself back on track um and yeah I have to agree that in this last year and if it I mean it comes to breast cancer but also the, the COVID-19 situation with you know being chef de mission and um helped me I mean the mental strength and and to see priorities and to see where you have influence on or where not or how to calm yourself or how to calm Others um, was something that I could still use in in this last last year as a you know on on personal level but also on professional level. It, it, the decision to employ a, a sports psychologist in your career did you make that very early? Did you always have a, a sports psychologist working with you? Um, I guess when I made the decision, and it feels like I, I, I always say that it is a decision. But when you when you're at the point that you you know I was I was in this. Uh, pinpoint in my career i just won the u.s open in 98 and in 2000 there was the first paralympics and i made the, this this decision to really wanting to uh, uh go for um you know attending the paralympic games in in sydney um i also decide to um yeah contact a, a sports psychologist to help me and so actually yeah from from the beginning on um when i started to well, put myself big goals on my uh, on my tennis list. Uh, I also uh, contacted this this person, um, yeah, to help me because I knew that you know nutrition and and like your mental abilities would would help would help to perform better. Um, yeah, are you surprised that more more tennis pros don't employ a sports psychologist? We had Iga Swiatek um, talking about it at the French Open, didn't she? She had a, a psychologist with her there, but. That was quite a big story at the time because it was it was quite unusual, I think. I don't know this particular uh, case, but I am surprised. 
and not in tennis uh, specifically, but in in sports generally, that it's it's still, and I think it's more common in in sports than it is in in like the professional working world, uh, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I, I'm surprised that not everybody or every athlete or even teams uh, don't always have this kind of person to help a team or an individual um, basically 24-7. And I didn't hire one for 24-7 a, a, a day, but I knew that that this person which you have to build a relationship with and you have to get to know, it, it takes time for you to, to really see the effect and it takes time to really um, see the influence that you're brain have on your um, uh, performance um, so I yeah I'm hoping and I'm uh, I'm telling athletes now at the moment younger athletes uh, to always take that aspect of sport into account when they start their professional uh, sporting career because it's it's so important and it, and not and, and and it's maybe also um, not only during your sporting career but also afterwards or when you make the decision to end your professional sporting career or to step into the real or normal world, um, it, it, it will help you to become a stronger person um, in general as a whole, I guess. Yeah. It's mm, really interesting. I, I know you, I know you played, played national level basketball before, before becoming a tennis pro. What, what attracted you away from basketball and in the direction of tennis, away from a team sport, and in the direction of of the individual. Yeah, and I, I guess that is that is the answer at the same time because it was tennis is an individual sport, and you're not depending on on a team, and you're not depending on the people that that you know um, have a place in that team where you don't get to pick the people. Um, and I guess I really was triggered by the fact that you can plan your own route and that you can you can pick your own people around you and you can um yeah figure out your own way or your your route that you want to take uh with your own standards and with your own level of of professionalism and um i guess that was the the trigger for me besides that i just i loved the game being responsible for my own uh, performance and uh, results, not depending on anybody else. And I, I, I guess that was, yeah, taking that responsibility was something that I was attracted to. Yeah. Do you, do you remember the first time you played wheelchair tennis? Uh, I I do remember in in my rehabilitation uh, center that, that I was introduced with uh, with tennis, um, and it's a it's a complicated sport for for wheelchair tennis players because it's not only the record that you have to control it's also your chair mm. and the pushing and and then the technique of tennis of course and then a combination of all those things so it was it was uh, complicated but um um uh, the the people that taught me um the people that I was introduced to who already played wheelchair tennis they they were nice. They were open. They were uh, honest about, you know, the possibilities in tennis. Um, so that that pulled me into the sport, I guess. Did do you remember? Do you remember a moment of thinking this? This is what I want to do. 
this is what I want to make my my career and and my life. Well, I guess back in the days, because we were talking about a long, long time ago, um, th- there was no talking about this is a professional opportunity. Um, I wasn't even aware of Paralympic Games because there, at that time there was no Paralympic Games on television. Um, I had no clue. I just had, you know, I became paralyzed and I had no clue about the disability world, so to speak. Um, so it, for me, it was just uh talking about fun and and in which sport i knew i was i wanted to play sports more often because that was something that i could put my energy in um that was something that i felt strong about because you know going back to school as a eight nine ten year old uh being confronted with your disability was quite um heavy um uh, sometimes and so sports gave me the opportunity to just be active and and had fun and um so those were the main reasons why i just liked to play sports um only later on i was you know getting more informed about wheelchair tennis and the opportunities and the possibility of maybe you know become a paralympic athlete and maybe join the paralympics um so later on i was i was triggered on becoming the best and 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 of course people were telling me that they were like wow so you're such a young athlete and you have good hand-eye coordination and uh, what if you you know um, uh, start to train with us in Amsterdam and not just with your local club Um, maybe you can become better and maybe you can become a really good player and you know giving or getting those compliments was something that that wanted me to uh, yeah to get the more out of myself yeah the Netherlands is one of the most successful nations in terms of of para sports, disability sports. Is and there are sort of a, f- a few nations that do seem to kind of lead lead the way and have led the way for a long time. Do, why is that? What is the attitude? And and how has it sort of evolved over the years to towards disability sport in, in yeah, the Netherlands? I, yeah, I guess with um, with with all sports, and if we. Uh, if we look at the Paralympic Games and we see ourselves uh, as a small country uh, with not a whole big team, um, but we always end like within the top 10 position of the medal ranking, I guess this be- this is because we are organized uh, very well. We're, we're a small country, so we can train with each other we can we can share knowledge with each other we share experts with each other and we are fully integrated so our paralympic athletes get the same opportunities and and knowledge and experts as the olympic athletes uh the same financial support as the olympic athletes um, and i guess that makes the prof- the level of professionalism very high um and i guess that makes us us good um and and besides that the netherlands is a developed country if it comes to people with disabilities so and i guess there's always steps to take forward um and there's always steps to take uh, or to go to a better place but i guess we are in a, a position that we as people with disability are fully accepted in the society so we get uh, fair chances on education and playing sports, um, uh, getting our equipment, uh, wheelchairs, uh, prosthetics, uh, stuff like that. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's probably one of the reasons uh, why we do so well. Has that has that always been the case? Is it something you felt shift? Because thinking about the UK, in terms of perception, it felt like there was a huge shift um, after the, the 
uh, the Paralympic Games here in in 2012 mm-hmm. in terms of perception of disability disability yeah. sport it, it, uh, w- what's that been like in the ne- Netherlands over the years I'm waiting for that step to be made in the Netherlands to be honest I'm kind of jealous of the step that the UK made after the uh, London Paralympics and I think that the Netherlands is not at the same level um but I think in I don't know perception like you said uh, or the mentality of the people or the expectations towards Paralympic athletes could take the next step. And I, I think that once we have or would have such a you know big event in the Netherlands, um, we could make that switch. And that, that it, 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 it's about you know the commercial opportunities for athletes or uh, communication about wheelchair, t- wheelchair tennis or disability sports, but also Uh, communication about um, Paralympics, I think that could take a next step or should take a next step. And um, I'm waiting for that or I'm working hard to uh, um, to break that barrier. And I'm not too sure what's needed for that, but I, I, I know that having such a big event like a Paralympics would help and has helped the UK. So, uh, yeah, we're somewhere in the, in the, in the, in the same position i guess uh, but like i said with with communication and commercial opportunities i think the uk has a is a step ahead of us just focusing on on your career um a little bit i mean it's difficult to know what to zero in on because just so many titles so many highlights do do you have achievements that you think about more than others or are most proud of moments or titles Well, there, there's this moment that I always uh, mention, be- and it's because it was such a. Uh, it, it's the um, the Paralympic final of Beijing, 2008, and I was uh, playing Corey Holman. Uh, she's also Dutch, and we um, uh, we had this well a fight uh, I don't know, for for many many years, but she had never won. Uh, she'd never beat me and in that final she was um, match point she had match point um, on me and uh, so this situation was stressful and unknown to me and um, and of course I told myself that I you know wanted to make or win this uh, gold medal there uh, didn't want to lose to Corey uh, in the Paralympic Games so that was very I don't know tight situation and 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 stressful not only to me but also to Corey of course um, because now she was just one point away of beating me and beating me at the most important maybe moment in her career um, and then eventually I could turn this match point around uh, and, and turn the match towards uh, a win for myself um, winning this gold medal so I guess yeah that that moment is just standing out because it was such an important moment because it was so so stressful Um, and of course, that it turned around in a positive way for me. That it, that I will never forget that moment. So, so that match was sort of right in the middle of your extraordinary 470 match winning streak. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think kind of what came after it could have been different if that winning streak had been snapped at that moment? Yeah, I, I guess it it could. I think it could. Yeah, uh, a, a lot of times. I was thinking or told myself, what if I lose now and take that pressure off my shoulder? Uh, would I perform different or would I feel different? Or um, and, and I get the answer could be yes, 
that, that, that I wouldn't feel as much pressure and, um, maybe I would have played more freely or, um, wouldn't worry so much about losing uh, because I had those moments that I was just more worried about losing than I was focusing on, on winning. Um, and there were times that I didn't like that and I didn't enjoy uh, playing tennis anymore because of that, um, because it's not fun if you're just worried and worried all the time. Um, so yes, I think it 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 it, it would have been different. I don't know if the results would have been different. Uh, that I don't know, but maybe the feeling would have been different for me um, when playing. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'm so fascinated by by the winning streak because I mean it's just it's so rare. I think it's the the second longest in in all known sport. Yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> That I think there streak. is one uh, um, squash player yes. who has more uh, yeah, winning streak. Yeah. It's just extraordinary. So it's it's it it's kind of something that not many people can can understand or or empathise with. Did it did it feel lonely at all being in that being in that position? Mm, no, no, lonely is the is the wrong word. Um, sometimes I've felt that people were more paying more attention to the streak than the actual uh, win that I had on that moment. Uh, I don't know if that, that makes sense, but mm. for me, the winning streak was not the goal that I had. Um, so for me, it was, you know, tournament by tournament or the, I was aiming for the Grand Slams or, you know, those Paralympic medals, um, what counted for me and not the streak itself. And so when I retired on the 470th, um, people were asking me, oh, why don't you go for the 500 or for the 550? Or because they were like, well, you, yeah, that, that must be your aim or that must. But I was not, um, yeah, that, that was not my main goal. So, yeah, I guess the streak street is just something that came with my sporting career, but it's not a goal itself. Do, do you remember when you first sort of started to be really aware of it maybe when you first started to be asked about it all the time when it became a big feature of your mm. career yeah I, th I think but I'm, I'm not too sure when that was but but I think it was around or maybe at the time that I was at this 250 streak or something I don't even know what year that was <laughs> um yeah but and 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 some countries or some journalists were more into it than than others and, and for example in America they're they're all about statistics and 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 numbers and so they, when I whenever I played in America, there were more talks about it than than wherever in the world. So sometimes I was just not busy with it at all, and in some tournaments I was confronted with it all the time. D did you ever feel invincible? No, never. No, no, it, because I was just. Um, no, I, I I realized that any moment, any time, there could be a moment that I would have a bad day, or somebody would have a really good day, or my preparation were not good enough, or the 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 conditions were different than I expected. So at any time, it could something could happen, and I guess that that was the time in two thousand and three. I lost first round to Daniela Toro in Australia, and I was so. Um, so mad at myself that I just did not do the preparations well enough that I was 
uh, not prepared for the wind, not prepared for the temperature in Australia, not prepared. So I was just not, didn't do my preparation well. And I, and, and that was for me a moment that I was so mad at myself that I made the decision not to, uh, be, you know, bad prepared, um, at any time anymore. So I always had to be well prepared. And, um, yeah, that's wow. when I started to win. Was it was the streak a factor in your retirement decision? Were you were you wanting to retire with the streak preserved? Mm, no, because otherwise I'd probably retired earlier or, or sooner um, in, a, in you know an earlier year. Um, so no, that was not that was not. Um, no, a consideration that I wanted to end the career not losing. No, I knew that the the risk of losing, uh, of course, was there every single time and would maybe become a bigger risk than than, than at that moment because I was becoming older and, and players were becoming better. Um, but the main reason why I retired was that I just couldn't find the motivation anymore to be away from home so much that I realized that at my 31st, um, I was needing to prepare for a social career or, you know, yeah, a career after my, my tennis career and that I could use my tennis or my status or my performance at that moment to maybe, you know, get work in, sports um where i would love to work and so all those things together i guess uh, were the reasons why i um uh, retired in 2013 did it feel completely right was it one of those sort of you you know when the time is right or were there bits of you that wondered oh maybe i maybe i could play on maybe i could extend the streak maybe yeah, i could get to it, 500 yeah it was a, i wasn't sure uh, about anything anymore because I, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to continue because I didn't have the motivation, but I also, also wasn't sure about what, what would come or how the world after tennis would look like or, or what I would do or who, who I would be without a record. Um, so everything was in, in, insecure or insure. Um, I just, I, yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> and for a couple of years, that was the feeling that I have. And I never regret uh, the fact that I retired. I never regret the fact that I um, ended my career at the, at, the, at the moment that I did. Um, but I had a lot of questions, a, a lot of years, um, like who I was and what I wanted to do and am I good enough? Um, and sometimes I was, you know, lonely in my bed uh, thinking about maybe – you know, making a comeback uh, because sometimes it's just very comfortable to go back to a world that you have so much confidence. Mm. Um, and the lack of confidence I had in this other world or the the normal world didn't feel um, nice. Didn't feel nice. Um, but like an official comeback, I never made. Um, it was just a you know a thought that I had in the middle of the night, and then I. Woke up the next morning and I was like, nah, no, this is not, this, this wouldn't be right. Uh, I just had to put through this uncomfortable feeling and I just have to gain confidence, um, with all the things that I'm going to do. And it, that just takes time. 
I, I, I spoke to other athletes that retired and they all have the same feeling. Um, it's just a different world and you have to get used to it. And so it's not a, a crazy or it's not weird that you, that you feel a little bit lost. Um, you just have to, you have to give yourself the time to get used to it. I, I read that during the final 10 years of career, your career, you won 95 matches without losing a game. Did you did you enjoy those kind of wins, that kind of dominance, or would you have preferred a narrow, competitive, hard-fought win? Uh, I would have preferred a little bit more competition. Yeah, because that is what you want to have as an athlete. You want to compete, and you want to fight, and you want to play your best to... Um, to show yourself that all the effort that you put in is is worth it and that you need it um, to uh, to win that one match. So, yeah, I, I would have preferred a little bit more competition. Yeah, there, there was I remember there was, there was quite a lot of people, us in the media d- during those years of your, your career that speculated about whether whether your dominance was bad for the game. Did, yeah. did that bother you? Uh, no, it didn't bother me at all because I had those same questions um, and how nice it would have been if there would be more competition. But then also the fact that it's not my fault. It's not something that I have influence on. So it didn't it didn't bother me because I, I completely understood why those questions were raised. Uh, only I didn't have the answer, and I and and. And above that all, um, it wasn't my fault. Uh, but I guess that's for Paralympic sports in general. I mean, yeah, there's just not as much Paralympic athletes or disabled athletes as there are um, able-bodied athletes. So it's a very logical um, result of how the world is. Um, and that's, that's just a fact that I think we have to learn to live with. Learn to live with or learn to change? Uh, well, I guess we all, uh, I would like to, uh, that, that, that we work hard to get more people with disabilities into sport, uh, because that would be good. Um, and to make the competitions in, in all different sports as, as competitive as, um, uh, how do you say, as professional as possible. Mm. Um, and so we have to work hard for that. And, and um, we as athletes, we as organizations, we as International Paralympic Committee, um, we as able-bodied uh, federations. So the, to, yeah, to develop um, disability sports as a whole. And in terms of, you know, the, the levers that you pull, the mechanics of that is, is the main thing funding? Is it as simple and as crude as funding or is it something more more social about attitudes to, to disability and disability sport? As a reason for, for it to, to, to grow, you to, mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's definitely not only funding. No, it's, it's also the attitude, uh, like I said, the integration within able-bodied sports organizations, uh, the acceptance of people with disability in society and uh, sporting clubs, um, uh, probably also education um, of kids uh, towards people with disability, um, and 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 also like in rehab centers, in you know supporting people with disabilities to get the opportunity to play sports. 
um, at more places, um, more locations than maybe are uh, accessible at the moment. You know, all all those aspects will work towards probably more more athletes. Um, so it's not just one um, not just one issue that if we solve that, then everything is solved. I think it's a more co- complicated um, uh, field. During those during those dominant years of your career, what was your profile like at home? How much attention did you get? Did did you feel like it that extraordinary streak got the attention it deserved? What what was the spotlight like on you? Uh, I think I I got a, a really good amount of attention um so i could see that in sponsorships that i got i could see the the media attention that i got um the streak helped for sure um i think the fact that wheelchair tennis was integrated into grand slams at you know at the time that i was um playing uh and also the comments that for example roger federer nadal djokovic uh, said about me um, that helped that helped the awareness in the Netherlands for sure so I as a person I have nothing to complain uh, if it comes to the attention and the awareness that I got I think if I look at the Netherlands now there's not enough attention not enough spotlight for the next generation uh, Paralympic athletes so if you Ask somebody in the Netherlands, just a random somebody on the streets, and name a Paralympic athlete. They can still uh, say my name, um, but they, they have a hard time saying other names or or Dieter de Groot or um, so. Hmm, uh, there, there's we are behind now. There's not a new uh, set of athletes that have the same profile um, as I had, and that's a pity. Mm. I'm definitely going to need to work on my pronunciation of Dida de Groot. Yes. I've definitely been saying that wrong <laughs> for a long time. Um, a lot of that coverage that, that you'd have received and, and still received, I'm sure, I'm sure after what you went through, through last, last year, that there was a lot of this again, would have featured the word inspirational. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what what that word is in in Dutch. Whether there is a, a direct translation, yeah, um, inspiratie. Yes. Oh, okay, <laughs> uh, that that I can understand. There's a lot of debate around that word in in para sport. Some some people really object to it. Where do you mm-hmm. where do you stand on that word? Um, I'm not against it. Um, definitely not because I see the the combination of the story behind the athlete and the performance. Uh, so I'm not against it. And I don't, um, I sometimes use it myself. Uh, but I do see that we need to make the switch towards looking at performances and seeing the, 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 the sporting um, part, the, the athlete part more than the story behind the athlete um so i see it as a combination i mean the story that i have uh i can't delete it it's part of me it's part of who i am and and part of the athlete i became and the person i am today so i can't delete it and i do realize that for some people this is 
inspirational or this could be helpful in their lives this could be yeah something that i can they can hold on to um but if i would be an athlete at this moment uh, and i had that as well being an athlete at that time uh you also want to talk about your performance you also want to talk about your matches you also want to be asked by journalists for your performance and not only how great it is that you are playing tennis or how uh, great it is that you can uh, get in and out of your car yourself those questions so yeah i think we need to switch this is the time that we need to switch to more towards the sporting uh, performance did, did you ever find it tiresome or tiring to have to represent something more than yourself I was I spoke to Billie Jean King last week about, you know, she was never just representing Billie Jean King. She was always yeah. representing women, all women. Yeah. Um, did, were you ever sort of burdened or did you ever feel burdened by that? Yeah. Um, during my career, I sometimes did feel that way. Um, and then the second after that, I thought that it's just part of it. And as an athlete, you are a role model and then so it comes with being more than just that athlete or being more than just the, your own person so it, it's it's that package that you just have to deal with um as i look at my life now i sometimes feel that uh people expect me to to only be uh an added value within the paralympic world while I see myself more in, you know, the sporting world as a, as mm. a whole, as in general, um, and not only have that stamp of uh, disability sports, Paralympic sports, Paralympic athlete. I can, I can do more. I can be more. I am more than just that. Um, so it's not a burden, but but uh, to break out of that is sometimes difficult to. Um, yeah, to to take that step. Would you like to? Integration is a word that that's come up a lot. Would yeah. you like to see more integration at the tournaments of tennis and wheelchair tennis and yeah, and and coverage sure. as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Of course, there is a difference between able-bodied tennis and wheelchair tennis, and maybe the 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 amount of minutes on television or the amount of live television. Um, uh, there has to be a difference, maybe, but for sure in coverage, for sure in in just match planning on courts, um, and this also is for other sports than just tennis. Uh, but I really see the added value if you combine those two mm -hmm. worlds. Um, they can strengthen each other. They can they can yeah be be so much added value for spectators for for. Well, the, the aspect of integration in society, they can be so, it, it could be so helpful. Mm. How, how do we achieve that, though? Because ev everybody I know that that has been exposed to wheelchair tennis, they come away from it saying, my goodness, that was that was brilliant to watch. Yeah. It, so, but, but then, you know, it might be years before they are exposed to it again. How, yeah, how, how do we achieve it? Yeah, I think media is uh, key to that. They can make it happen. It's, it's about the willingness. It's about funding as well, probably, because money is an issue uh, if it comes to that. 
but the tournaments are already combined during Grand Slams. Uh, ABN Emro tournament in Rotterdam is a combined tournament. So the opportunities are there. Uh, players are there. Matches are there. Um, it's then just the the planning and the, the the getting space on television or online or that we need to um, that we need to work on. So uh, so I guess yeah, media is a big part of that. Do you do you have particular fears or worries about the effect of this pandemic on 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 wheelchair tennis and disability sport? Because the pandemic does seem to be exacerbating existing inequalities do you feel do you fear that wheelchair tennis might take a, a bigger hit than other areas of the sport um no i don't think so the, maybe there was a little bit of a hiccup uh, during the for the for the us open last year while there was just a i think miscommunication to the athletes um and a misunderstanding that they would cancel the wheelchair tennis but then have the the US Open for able-bodied players. And maybe because of that hiccup or maybe because of that situation, there is no tournament that will say we're not going to have wheelchair tennis. So in in my opinion, it is, it, it's not harmed um, by any effect at this moment, but not, not more than the able-bodied tennis world. So I don't see any big issues or problems coming up, no. That's good to hear. I was reading. I was reading that you've designed your own wheelchair. Is that right? Yeah. In in the last uh, let's say three years of my career, I I worked on this wheelchair, which I thought this could help me with a lot of uh, just a couple of percentages uh, to play better. And and I also had needed some well challenge like building your own wheelchair um, to keep the motivation to get myself motivated to uh to take those extra steps uh, in my in the last um phase of my career and so yes i i i yeah built my own chair which i thought could help me perform uh better yeah and is that is that a chair that was it just sort of one prototype for you or is it a chair that's now being used by well this specifically was was made for me but the the the, the the reason behind why we built this chair, how we built this chair is, is uh, copied by many other players now. Um, and they see the, 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 the effect that it has on, you know, hitting harder, making a, a, a more precise serve. Um, so, yeah, thank goodness this is copied. Um, and uh, but nobody could have ever played in in the exact same chair as I did because I just have a different different disability and a different body and different mm. uh, game uh, style. So um, yeah, a one on one copy would never have worked. Just on just on the chair, I'm kind of, one of the aspects of wheelchair tennis that or, or disability sport in general that's really talked about it is the pure practicalities of the the travel it being such an international touring sport mm-hmm. but having you're, you're not only taking your luggage and kit and rackets and everything with you but you've also got to transport the the chair around the world i mean yeah th- and that is one of the most valuable things yeah. for a wheelchair tennis player <laughs> yeah so it's it's also a, a, a risky thing to do because whenever it's broke or you know something's missing um yeah it's 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 not that 
you just buy another pair of shoes. Um, it's it's your chair. So um, yeah, those it's it's a thing. It's a hassle to do that every single tournament. Does, yeah. does, does it go? When, oh, I'm getting really into the nitty gritty now. Does it go in the hold of yes. the hold luggage? Yeah. So was, so that must be kind of anxiety inducing. Yeah. 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 Every single time. And whenever you get out of the plane, then fingers crossed to see if it, if it, if it made it to the same destination. And if it makes it to the same destination to see if it's all, uh, complete and not broken. Yeah. Goodness me. So are, are there any horror stories of sort of waiting at the baggage carousel? And- oh, yeah. Many, many. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, you have to imagine that you, for a Paralympic Games or for a, grand slam or a big tournament and then you don't have your chair and it's it i mean those chairs are expensive and it's not for everybody to have a spare chair in their backyard so um it's the only thing you have um and if it then just you know arrived um, at the other end of the world or parts are missing or your whole chair is broken in in two um yeah there's some stress moments for sure gosh (laughs) (laughs) yeah wow your um, I was looking at your Twitter bio. It ends with the words "full of ambition." What? Yeah. What are your remaining ambitions? Well, we're talking about the integration. I mean, that's part of me that just never wants to stop. So I see integration um, in in more sports, uh, but also in in sport federations and in sports organizations. So. Um, I, I do that with my work with my foundation um, at local clubs. I do that with the ABN Emerald Tournament. I do that with my chef de mission um, role for Tokyo. Uh, so I see that as as something that in 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 you know the society that we live in, where I think integration, diversity, inclusion is is a hot topic. Um, I see that as opportunities in in the next uh, couple of years. So I will probably stick to that and believe in that and sh- and spread my belief wherever and to whoever wants to hear it and see how far we can go because I, I believe in fair chances i believe in fair opportunities for for all people um and so um with sports which i think is a great uh, uh example on how we can do it and 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 sports is something that almost all people love uh, I think we can we can tell this story and we can share this story with beautiful examples of athletes. And, and if your if your ambitions are fulfilled, what what would you like tennis and wheelchair tennis to look like in ten years? Say, um, wow, the, 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 um, wheelchair tennis would be integrated at more tournaments. So not only Grand Slams, but also ATP and WTA tournaments, that the worlds of those athletes come together more often, help each other more often, and that the profile of, of, of Paralympic athletes um, is is more than it is now. And, and yeah, what is more, but um, more known, more appreciated, uh, more respected maybe than it is at the moment. Um, yeah, I think that would be a good a good thing to start with (laughs) Mm. well it's a fantastic thing to be working towards and um yeah i mean i hope by on the podcast giving a bit of attention to to wheelchair tennis which as i say we probably should probably should do more so this is the um the starting point so yeah absolutely thank you so much for being a part of it thank you so much 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello tennis podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Wow, Catherine, that was really something. And I mean, I, I've wanted to hear from her for a long time. And, um, and it's lovely that we could have a proper amount of time for you to speak to her in that way. And she was everything I hoped she would be and more. And, and I just found it so interesting. What, what, what stood out for you coming off the phone from her? What, what stood out for you? Uh, well, you heard it at the at the very end there. Integration, um, that strive striving for integration, and we had a reminder there from from Matt um, before the interview that you know wheelchair singles didn't wasn't even played at Wimbledon until 2016. This is really really recent history. We're talking about that that they've even had sort of a halfway decent platform on which to play their sport. Um, But it's a bit like doubles, really. I don't know anybody that hasn't watched an elite level wheelchair tennis match and come away and gone, blimmin' egg. That was good. Um, And so uh, for me, it's yet another argument for best of five week one, best of three week two, because I'm sure scheduling... Um, would be a reason uh, uh, at the moment given against greater integration the the um the high value of center court and and show court uh scheduling in the latter stages of slams um yeah, the more I think about our case for that, the more I am just increasingly convinced by it. I mean, we're obviously right. 
Well, get, let's get Esther on Q, the case as well. Q Twitter pylon. Um, but yeah, this is just, doubles and wheelchair tennis, just another reason for it, um, as far as I'm concerned. So I'd be very much up for that. Um, I, yeah, and as I said, I'm just so fascinated by the psychology of that winning streak and how she said she never felt invincible at any stage during it. I mean, I guess that's what enabled her to continue it for so long. The fact that she wasn't ever complacent, but mm. I, I think my, my mind fa- boggles my, about my, it. My favourite line, I think, is the one where she was match point down in 2008 and she just thought, oh, <laughs> this is different, sort of thing. What do I do now? <laughs> yes, I love she, how she can point to a specific match in which she was match point down. Out of the yeah. many hundreds that she plays, there was one. Mm that really stands out. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Well, what about you, Matt? Yeah, I mean, the psychology of that winning streak as well for me. I, I think I was expecting her to talk about it as this really great thing, uh, you know, how great it is to be invincible, to be at the absolute top of your sport. But there were lots of things she spoke about there that obviously it was great to be winning, but there was there were some tough elements to it that I hadn't really considered. And I think... The main one was this idea of athletes are always talking about wanting to improve, wanting to be better. And if you're on a winning streak of over 400 matches, where is there for you to go? I kind of feel like I now see it from that perspective. Um, And I imagine you do start obsessing over your faults in the pursuit of perfection and excellence. And that must be tiring. And this this worry that, that it's going to end and... And at the same time, what she said about almost in a way it becoming more of an obsession for journalists than it was for her. Yes, she was interested in it. But I think there was perhaps a lesson for us there. I've certainly done this. I've been guilty of this with the Grand Slam race in the men's game of constantly looking at the next thing, the next achievement, rather than actually focusing on what they've achieved just now in this moment. Um, I think I think we can often measure athletes by what they are accumulating rather than actually why what they're doing in the moment. And I feel like Vergeer really felt that. And tennis is particularly bad for that because there's always the next thing and the next thing is invariably really close around the the corner because of the calendar, even at the end of the year. You've got mm. a week in the Maldives, if you're lucky, and then you, you're, you're in the off-season focusing for the next season. Where's the reflection uh, makes me think it's Simona Halep talked about that, didn't she? After I remember when she came into Wimbledon after winning the French and she was just like, yeah, my head's not really in this. I'd, I'd really rather be just hugging my French Open trophy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and I mean, ultimately, that's how these all-time greats are able to keep doing what they're doing is because they're not like us. They're mm. not like she... I mean, Esther very politely basically said, if I was like you lot, I wouldn't have done any of it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> because that's that's how the mentality of a champion yeah. works. There's me all... desperately trying to relate to it all and she's like, yeah, stop that. <laughs> you can't. You're not going to do it. Uh, okay. And I, I think that's, that's one of the things that Nadal always slightly ticks us off for, isn't it? That, that you know, you... You only achieve this if you focus on the next match and and don't say, oh, he'll, he'll eat him for breakfast, no problem, you know, because Nadal's not, he can't afford to feel like that because that's when the, eventually the focus will go and the upset will come. Um, well, I, I loved listening to that, Catherine. Thanks for, for doing it. And, um, you know, we, we 
we mean what we say we want to do other s- similar types of shows and to get to know other people on the tennis circuit wheelchair players um doubles players d- different characters so many stories out there to be told and we want to tell them here on the podcast Mm, maybe a Yahanga Khan special. I've, oh, got, well, I've done the research. I bet he was a good tennis player as well. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we will be back again on Monday with another edition, another edition of the tennis podcast, in which we'll be looking back on the week that has just gone in. Well, that is going on as we speak in Charleston, and uh, there are tournaments on clay as well. At the moment, we've just been watching Dan Evans fight it out with Lorenzo Massetti and having three match points. That was hilarious. Um, and Massetti eventually won. So lots and lots uh, to talk about when we get together on Monday. Our mascot for the week is uh, Clancy. If you haven't been monitoring Instagram, do go and have a look because the <laughs> Clancy's owner has posted a, a video of Clancy chasing the tennis ball around, which is absolutely epic. Even I was totally won over by that one. Um, Catherine's mascot uh, for the year, in fact, is who, Catherine? Is Zeus. Zeus, of course it and is. And all our chips are on Petra Kvitova, which is... Yeah. Well, it can be a great place to be, but it can also be a very precarious place to be. Right. OK, well, Rogue, you and I have gone big on Casper Ruud. Matt and Scousel Mousel have gone for who? Genuinely forgotten who I predicted this week. <laughs> Got it. Lorenzo Sonego, hoping he will repeat oh. that week where he was the best player in the world. Right. Remember okay. that week? Yeah. yeah, not really. When he beat um, a ch- checked out Djokovic. Oh, right, I see. Yes. Um, and uh, Billie Jean King is sponsoring um, Billie Jean the dog, who doesn't mm. get a prediction um, and who is just asleep at the moment. She's asleep, yeah. Yeah, oh, good. She needs, she needs a haircut urgently. Right. Which is, which is all of us right now, isn't it? Yeah, sure is. Uh, our executive producer is Chris oh, Albert Lee. She's top up at the mention of her name. Oh, well, what do you know? Have we got any shout-outs, Matt? We do for oh, excellent. Paul Spence. All right, Paul. Thanks very Hello, much. Hello, Paul. There's a golfer named Jamie Spence, I remember. I wonder if they're related at all. Masters Week, Paul. There's a few golfers called Paul as well. There are, yeah. Mm. Carry on, Matt. Andy Mallon. Andy. Oh, we know Andy, Andy don't we? Lovely. Andy. Andy's yeah. always dropping us a note and saying nice things. Thanks a yes. lot, Andy. Hello, Andy. And someone else we know is Rose Mercier, owner of Oats. Oh, hello, Rose. Thank you for bringing Oats into our lives. Still waiting for confirmation on whether there was ever a haul or whether there will ever be a haul. Catherine's investigations will continue and uh, we will be back with another tennis podcast on Monday. Do leave us an iTunes review uh, if you get the chance and tell your friends about us. We'll see you on Monday. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.